0: Section 7 of The Golden Bough, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording, All LibriVox recordings from the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org, recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 3, The Slaying of the King in Legend Reminiscence of a Custom of Ridicide in Popular Tales if a custom of putting kings to death at the end of a set term has prevailed in many lands it is natural enough that reminisces reminiscences of it should survive in tradition long after the custom itself has been abolished story how Lancelot came to a city where the king had to perish in the fire on new year's day in the high history of the holy grail we read how Lancelot roamed through strange lands and forests seeking adventures till he came to a fair and wide plain lying without a city that seemed of right great lordship as he rode across the plain the people came forth from the city to welcome him with the sound of flutes and viols and many instruments of music when he asked them what meant all this joy sir said they all this joy is made along of you and all these instruments of music are moved to joy and sound of gladness for your coming but wherefore for me said Lancelot. that shall you know well betimes they say this city began to burn and to melt in one of the houses from the very same hour that our king was dead nor might the fire be quenched nor even will be quenched until some time as we have a king that shall be lord of the city of the honour thereunto belonging and on new year's day behove him to be crowned in the midst of the fire and then shall the fire be quenched otherwise it may never be put out nor extinguished. Wherefore have we come to meet you, to give you the royalty? For we have been told that you are a good knight. Lords, said Lancelot, of such a kingdom have I no need, and God defend me from it. Sir, they say, you may not be defended thereof, for you come into this land at hazard, and great grief would it be that so good a land as you see this is were burnt and melted away by the default of one single man and the lordship is right great and this will be the right great worshipped to yourself on the new year's day you shall be crowned in the fire and thus say this city and this great people and thereof shall you have great praise much marvellous Lancelot, on this that they say they come round to him on all sides and lead him into the city the ladies and damsels are mounted to the windows of the great houses and make great joy and say to one another look at the new king here that they are leading in now will he quench the fire on new year's day lord say the most part what great pity it is of so comely a night they shall end on such wise be still say the others rather should there be great joy that so fair a city as is this should be saved by his death for prayer will be made throughout all the kingdom for his soul river. therewith they lead him to the palace with right great joy and say that they will crown him launcelot found the palace all strewn with rushes and hung about with curtains of rich clothes of silk and the lords of the city all apparelled to do him homage but he refuseth right stoutly and saith that their king nor their lord will never be in no such sort thereupon behold you a dwarf that entereth into the city leading one of the fairest dames that be in any kingdom and asketh whereof this joy and his murmuring may be. They tell him they are fain to make the knight king, but that he is not mine to allow them, and they tell him the whole manner of the fire. The dwarf and the damsel were alighted. Then they mount up to the palace. The dwarf calleth the provosts of the city and the greater lords. Lords, saith he, sith that this knight is not willing to be king. I will be so willingly. I will govern the city at your pleasure, and do whatever you are devised to do. In faith sith that the knight refuseth this honour, and you may desire to have it, willingly we will grant it to you, and he may go his way and his road, for herein do we declare him holy quit. Therewithal they set the crown on the dwarf's head, and lancelot maketh great joy thereof. He taketh his leave, and they commend him to God and so renounceth he on his horse and goeth his way through the midst of the city all armed the dames and damsels say that he would not be king for that he had no mind to die so soon story of king vikuradumetia of ujjain in india a story of the same sort is told of ujjain the ancient capital of Malwa in western india where the renowned king Vikramaditya, is said to have held his court, gathering about him a circle of poets and scholars. Tradition has it that once, on a time, an archfiend, with a legion of devils at his command, took up his abode in Ujain, the inhabitants of which he vexed and devoured. Many had fallen a prey to him, and others had abandoned the country to save their lives. Kings of Ujjain Devoured by a Demon After a Reign of a Single Day the once populous city was fast being converted into a desert. At last the principal citizens, meeting in council, besought the fiend to reduce his rations to one man a day, who would be duly delivered up to him in order that the rest might enjoy a day's repose. The demon closed with the offer, but required that the man whose turn it was to be sacrificed should mount the throne and exercise royal power for a single day, or the grandees of the kingdom submitting to his commands and everybody yielding him the most absolute obedience. Necessity obliged the citizens to accept these hard terms. Their names were entered on a list. Every day one of them in his turn ruled from morning to night, and was then devoured by the demon. Vikramaditya puts an end to the custom by vanquishing the demon, out of which he reigns as king of Ujjain. Now it happened by great good luck that a caravan of merchants from Gujarat halted on the banks of a river not far from the city. They were tended by a servant who was no other than Vikramaditya. At night the jackals began to howl as usual, and one of them said in his own tongue, In two hours a human corpse will shortly float down this river, with four rubies of great price at his belt, and a turquoise ring on his finger. He who will give me the corpse to devour will bear sway over the seven lands." Vikramaditya, knowing the language of birds and beasts understood what the jackal said gave the corpse to the beasts to devour and took possession of the ring and the rubies next day he entered the town and traversing the streets observed a troop of horse under arms forming a royal escort at the door of a porter's house the grandees of the city were there and with them was the garrison they were in the act of inducing the son of the porter to mount an elephant and proceed in state to the palace but strange to say instead of being pleased at the honour conferred on their son the potter and his wife stood on the threshold weeping and sobbing most bitterly learning how things stood the chivalrous vicaramiditia was touched with pity and offered to accept the fatal sovereignty instead of the potter's son saying that he would either deliver the people from the tyranny of the demon or perish in the attempt accordingly he donned the kinky robes, assumed all the badges of sovereignty and mounting the elephant rode in great pomp to the palace where he seated himself on the throne while the dignitaries of the kingdom discharged their duties in his presence that night the fiend arrived as usual to eat him up but vikramaditya was more than a match for him and after a terrific combat the fiend capitulated and agreed to quit the city next morning the people were coming to the palace were astonished to find vikramaditya still alive they thought he must be no common mortal but some superhuman being or descended of a great king. Grateful to him for their deliverance, they bestowed the kingdom on him, and he reigned happily over them. Yearly Human Sacrifices Forming Offered at Ujain According to one account, the dreadful being who ravaged Ujain and devoured a king every day was a bloodthirsty goddess Kali. When she quitted the city, she left behind her two sisters whose quaint images still frown on the spectator from a pillared portal known as Vikramaditya's gate to jane to these her sisters she granted the privilege of devouring as many human beings as they pleased once every twelve years that tribute they still exact though the european in his blindness attributes the deaths to cholera but in addition seven girls and five buffaloes were to be sacrificed to them every year and these sacrifices were to be offered regularly until the practice was put down by the english government it is said that the men who gave their five-year-old daughters to be slain received grants of land as a reward of their pity. Nowadays, only buffaloes are killed at the Dakaratha Festival, which is held in October on the ninth day of the month at Gvina. The heads of the animals are buried at Vikramaditya's gateway, and those of the last victims are taken up. The girls who would formerly have been sacrificed are now released, but they are not allowed to marry and their fathers still received grants of land just as if the cruel sacrifice had been consummated the persistence of these bloody rites at eugene down to risen times raises a presumption that the tradition of the daily sacrifice of a king in the same city was not purely mythical story of the birth of vikramaditya it is worth while to consider another of the stories which are told of king vikramaditya His birth is said to have been miraculous for his father was Gandharvasena, who was a son of the great god Indra. His father, Gandharvasena, was an ass by day and a man by night until his ass's skin was burnt when he left his wife forever. One day, Gandharvasena had the misfortune to offend his divine father, who was so angry that he cursed his son and banished him from heaven to earth, there to remain under the form of an ass by day and of a man by night until the powerful king should burn his ass's body, out which Ganharo Senna would regain his proper shape and return to the upper world. All this happened according to the divine word. In the shape of an ass, the son of the god rendered an important service to the king Dara, and received the hand of the king's daughter as his reward. By day he was an ass and ate hay in the stables. By night he was a man and enjoyed the company of the princess, his wife. But the king grew tired of the taunts of his enemies, as well as of the jibs, which were levelled by unfailing wits at his asinine son-in-law. So one night, while Gandarvasena, in human shape was with his wife, the king got hold of the Asa's body, which his son-in-law had temporarily acquitted, and throwing it on a fire, burned it to ashes. On the instant Gandarvasena appeared to him, and thanking him for undoing the spell, announced that he was about to return to heaven. But that his wife was with child by him and that she would bring forth a son who would bear the name Vikramaditya, and be endowed with the strength of a thousand elephants the deserted wife was filled with sorrow at his departure and died in giving birth to Vikramaditya. stories of the type of beauty and the beast which tell how human beings are married to beasts or to animals which temporarily assume human form This story belongs to a widely diffused type of tale which in england is known by the name of beauty and the beast it relates how a beast doffing its animal shape lives as a human husband or wife with a human spouse often though not always the marriage has a tragic ending the couple live lovely together for years and children are born to them but it is a condition of their union that the transformed husband or wife should never be reminded of his or her old life in furry feathered or finny form at last, one unhappy day, the fairy-spouse finds his or her beast-skin, which is being carefully hidden away by her or his loving partner, or husband and wife quarrel, and the real man or woman taunts the other with her or his kinship with the beasts. The sight of the once familiar skin awakens old memories and stirs yearnings that had been long suppressed. The cruel words undo the kindness of years. The sometime animal resumes its native shape and disappears, And the human husband or wife is left lamenting. Sometimes, as in the story of Gandharva Sena, the destruction of the beast's skin causes the fairy mate to vanish forever. Sometimes it enables him or her to remain thenceforth in human form with the human wife or husband. Tales of this sort are told by savages in many parts of the world, and many of them have survived in the folklore of civilized peoples. With the implied belief that beasts can turn to men, or men to beasts, they must clearly have originated among savages who see nothing incredible in such transformations. Stories of this kind are told by savages to explain why they abstain from eating certain animals. Now, it is to be observed that stories of this sort are told by savage tribes to explain why they abstain from eating certain animals. The reason they assign for the abstinence is that they themselves are descended from a creature of the sort who was changed for a time into human shape, and married a human husband or wife. Dyak stories of this type. Thus, in the rivers of Sarawak, there is a certain fish called a putin, which some of the Dyaks will on no account eat, saying that if they did so, they would be eating their relations. Tradition runs that a solitary old man went out fishing and caught a Puddin, which he dragged out of the water and laid down on his boat. On turning round, he perceived that it had changed into a very pretty girl. He thought she would make a charming wife for his son, so he took her home and brought her up till she was of an age to marry. She considered to be his son's wife, but cautioned her husband to use her well. Some time after marriage, however, he was angry and struck her. She screamed and rushed away into the water, leaving behind her a beautiful daughter who became the mother of the race. Other Day tribes tell similar stories of their ancestors. Thus the Sea dyaks relate how the white headed hawk married a Sea Dyak woman, and how he gave all his daughters in marriage to the various omen birds. Hence, if a sea diak kills an omen bird by mistake, he wraps it in a cloth and buries it carefully in the earth along with rice, flesh, and money. Entreating the bird not to be vexed and to forgive him, because it was all an accident. Again, a Kalimantan chief and all his people refrain from killing and eating deer of a certain species. Servilus Monsjac, because one of their ancestors became a deer of that kind, and as they cannot distinguish his incarnation from common deer, they spare them all. In these latter cases, the legends explaining the kinship of the men with the animals are not given in full. We can only conjecture, therefore, that they conform to the type here discussed story told by the sea dyaks to explain how they came to plant rice and to revere the yeoman birds. It describes how the young chief Sioux married a woman of the bird family and promised her never to hurt or even touch a bird. The sea Dys also tell a story of the same sort to explain how they first came to plant rice and to review the yeoman birds which play so important a part in dyak life long long ago so runs the tale when rice was yet unknown and the dyaks lived on tapioca yams potatoes and such fruits as they could procure a handsome young chief named sioux went out into the forest with his blowpipe to shoot birds he wandered without seeing a bird or meeting an animal till the sun was sinking in the west then he came to a wild fig-tree with ripe fruit which a swarm of birds of all kinds were busy pecking at never in his life had he seen so many birds together it seemed as if all the fowls of the forest were gathered in the boughs of that tree he killed a great many with the poisoned darts of his blowpipe and putting them in his basket started for home but he lost his way in the wood and the night had fallen before he saw the lights and heard the usual sounds of a dire house hiding his blowpipe and the dead birds in the jungle he went up the ladder into the house, but what was his surprise to find it apparently deserted. There was no one in the long veranda, and of the people whose voices he had heard a minute before, not one was to be seen. Only in one of the many rooms, dimly lighted, he found a beautiful girl who prepared for him his evening meal. Now, those Sue did not know it, the house was the house of the great Singalang Borong, the ruler of the spirit world. He could turn himself and his followers into any shape. When they went forth against an enemy, they took the form of birds for the sake of speed and flew over the tall trees, the broad rivers, even the sea. But in his own house and among his own people, Singer Langbarong appeared as a man. He had eight daughters, and the girl who cooked Sue's food for him was the youngest. The reason why the house was so still and deserted was that the people were in mourning for some of the relatives who had just been killed, and the men had gone out to take human heads in revenge. Sue stayed in the house for a week. And then the girl whose pet name was Bunsu Burong or the youngest of the bird family agreed to marry him but she said she must promise never to kill or hurt a bird or even to hold one in his hands for if he did she would be his wife no more soo promised and together they returned to his people but one day he broke his word and his bird wife left him and returned to the bird people there they lived happily and in time, Su's wife bore him a son whom they named Siru Gunting. One day when the boy had grown wonderfully tall and strong for his years and was playing with his fellows, a man brought some birds which he had caught in a trap. Forgetting the promise he had made to his wife, Su asked the man to show him the birds, and taking one of them in his hand he stroked it. His wife saw it and was sad at heart. She took the pictures and went as though she would fetch water from the well. But she never came back. Su and his son sought her sorrowing for days. At last, after many adventures, they came to the house of the boy's grandfather, Singalang Barong, the ruler of the spirit world. There they found the lost wife and mother, and there they stayed for a time. But the heart of Su yearned to his old home. He would fain have persuaded his wife to return with him, but she would not. So at last, he and his son went back alone. before he went he learned from his father-in-law how to plant rice and how to revere the sacred birds and to draw omens from them these birds were named after the sons-in-law of the ruler of the spirit world and were the appointed means whereby he made known his wishes to mankind that is how the sea Dyaks learned to plant rice to the honor of the omen birds stories of the same sort are told by the G speaking negroes of the Gold Coast to explain why they do not eat their totemic animals. Stories of the same kind meet us on the west coast of Africa. Thus the sea speaking negroes of the Gold Coast are divided into a number of great families or clans, mostly named after animals or plants, and the members of a clan refrain from eating animals of the species whose name they bear. In short, the various animals or plants are the totems of their respective clans. Now, some of the more recent of these clans possess traditions of their origin, and in such cases, the founder of the family from whom the name is derived is always represented as having been a beast, bird, or fish, which possesses the power to assume human shape at will. Thus, for instance, at the town of Chama, there resides a family or clan who take their name from the sarfu or horse mackerel, which they may not eat because they are descended from a horse mackerel. One day, so runs the story, a native of Chama, who had lost his wife, was walking sadly on the beach, where he met a beautiful young woman, whom he persuaded to be his wife. She consented, but told him that her home lay in the sea, that her people were fishes, and that she herself was a fish, and she made him swear that he would never allude to her old home and kinsfolk. All went well for a time till her husband took a second wife, who quarrelled with her first wife and tortured her with being a fish that grieved her so that she bade her husband good bye, and plunged into the sea with her youngest child in her arms but she left her two elder children behind from then a the horse mackerel people of chama a similar story is told of another family in the town of Apam. their ancestor caught a fine fish of the sort called epay which turned into a beautiful woman and became his wife but she told him that in future neither they nor their descendants might eat the Ape fish, or else they would at once return to the sea. A family, duly observing the prohibition, increased and multiplied till they occupied the whole country, which was named after them Apium or Apam. Stories of this sort were probably At first, always told to explain the totemic belief in the kinship of certain families with certain species of animals. We may surmise that stories of this sort, wherever found, had a similar origin. In other words, that they reflect and are intended to explain a real belief in the kinship of certain families with certain species of animals. Hence, if the name totemism may be used to include all such beliefs and the practices based on them, the origin of this type of story may be said to be totemic. When husband and wife had different totems, a violation of the totemic taboos by husband or wife might lead to the separation of the spouses. This would explain the separation of husband and wife in the type of tale here discussed. Now, wherever the totemic clams have become exogamous, that is, wherever a man is always obliged to marry a woman of a totem different from his own, it is obvious that husband and wife will always have to observe different totemic taboos and that a want of respect shown by one of them for the sacred animal or plant of the other would tend to domestic jars which might often lead to the permanent separation of the spouses the offended wife or husband returning to her or his native clan of the fish people the bird people or what not that i take it was the origin of the sad story of the man or woman happily mated we were transformed animal, and then part of forever. Such tales, if I am right, were not wholly fictitious. Totemism may have broken many loving hearts. But when that ancient system of society had fallen into disuse and the ideas on which it was based had ceased to be understood, the quaint stories of mixed marriages to which it had given birth would not be at once forgotten. They would continue to be told, no longer indeed as mere explanatory of custom but merely its fairy tales for the amusement of the listeners. The barbarous features of the old legends, which now appeared too monstrously incredible even for storytellers, would be gradually discarded and replaced by others which fitted in better with the changed beliefs of the time. Thus, in particular, the animal husband or animal wife of the story might drop the character of a beast to assume that of a fairy. This is the stage of decay exhibited by the two most famous tales of the class in question, the greek fable of cupid and psyche was the Indian story of king Perivarus and the nymph ulvazi though in the latter we can still detect hints that the fairy wife was once a bird woman the story or the parentage of Vikramaditya may point to a lion of kings who had the ass for the crest or totem it would no doubt be a mistake to suppose that totemism or a system of taboos resembling it must have existed wherever such stories are told for it is certain that popular tales spread by diffusion from tribe to tribe and nation to nation, till they may be handed down by all tradition among people who neither practise nor even understand the customs of which the stories originated. Yet the legend of the miraculous parentage of Vikramaditya may very well have been based on the existence at Ujjain of a line of rajahs who had the ass for their crest or totem. Such a custom is not without analogy in India. Similarly. The Maharajas of Nagpur have the cobra for their crest and the origin of the crest is explained by a story of the type of Beauty in the Beast. The crest of the Maharaja of Nagpur is a cobra with a human face under its expanded hood, surrounded by all the insignia of royalty. Moreover, the Raja and the chief members of his family always wear turbans so arranged that they resemble a coiled serpent with his head projecting over the wearer's brow to explain this serpent's badge a tale is told which conforms to the type of beauty in the beast once upon a time a nag or serpent named pandarika took upon himself the likeness of a brahman and repaired in that guise to the house of a real brahman at benares in order to perfect himself in a knowledge of the sacred books the teacher was so pleased with the progress made by his pupil that he gave him his only child the beautiful parvati to wife but the subtle serpent though he could assume any many former pleasure was unable to rid himself of his full tongue and foul breath to conceal these personal blemishes from his wife he always slept with his back to her one night however she got round him and discovered his unpleasant peculiarities she questioned him sharply and to divert her attention he proposed that they should make a pilgrimage to juggernaut the idea of visiting that fashionable watering place so raised the lady's spirits that she quite forgot to pursue the inquiry. However, on the way home, her curiosity revived, and she repeated her questions under circumstances which rendered it impossible for the serpent, as a tender husband, to evade them. He knew that the disclosure he was about to make would sever him, the immortal, at once for ever from his mortal wife. He related the wondrous tale and plunging into a pool disappeared from sight his poor wife was inconsolable at his hurried departure and in the midst of her grief and remorse her child was born but instead of rejoicing at the birth she made for herself a funeral pyre and perished in the flames at that moment a brahmin appeared on the scene and perceived the forsaken babe lying sheltered and guided by a great hooded snake it was the serpent father protecting his child Addressing the Brahman, he narrated his history and foretold that the child should be called Fani Makuda Raya, that is, the snake crowned, and that it should reign as Raja over the country to be called Nagpur. That is why the Rajas of Nagpur had the serpent for their crest. Again, the Rajas of Manipur trace their descent from a divine serpent. Again, the Rajas of Manipur trace their descent from a divine snake. At his installation at Raja of manipur he used to have to pass with great solemnity between two massive dragons of stone which stood in front of the coronation house somewhere inside the building was a mysterious chamber and in the chamber was a pipe which according to the popular belief led down to the depths of a cavern where dwells the snake god the ancestor of the royal family The length and prosperity of the Raja's reign were believed to depend on the length of time he could sit on the pipe, enduring the fiery breath of his serpentine forefather in the place below. Women are specially devoted to the worship of the ancestral snake, and great reverence is paid them in virtue of their sacred office. The parallelism between the legends of Nagpur and Ujjain may be allowed to strengthen my conjecture, that if we have a race of royal serpents in the one place, they well have been a race of royal asses in the other indeed such dynasties have perhaps not been so rare as might be supposed end of section seven